Lesson 10, Mental Miracles. In the back of his mind, each individual has a mass of fixed preferences and prejudices. The fundamental predilections of his nature are due to his type and are held in common with all others of that type. Their origin is biological, as has been fully treated in our course, The Five Human Types. But in addition to these, and alongside of them, there are myriads of little attitudes peculiar and personal to each and every individual and which come from his training, his education, his environment, and his experience. To realize the difference between the biological foundations of your nature, the things that make you in the by and large, and the hundreds of inclinations and indispositions which are privately and personally your own make, you might visualize a half-bushel basket full of apples. These are your type traits. They make up your fundamentals. But after the basket is as full of apples as it will hold, you can pour into the chinks a very large amount of navy beans. These are akin to the personal peculiarities which fill in the main outline called you. In every individual over five years of age, there are literally thousands of these miniature but mighty eccentricities which help or hinder us. They vary as widely and exist as universally as the human beings who possess them, which helps to account for the fact that no two people in the world are exactly alike. The average man, though he possesses, and is only too often possessed by, these automatic attitudes, seldom realizes their existence in his subconscious, much less conceives of their causes. He often imagines he makes his decisions volitionally, when his friends have long since learned that under certain circumstances, he is sure to react a certain way. He always gives reasons and is perfectly sincere in imagining these reasons are the real foundation of his decisions. But a mass of complicated machinery run by very definite psychological and physiological forces, of which he is entirely unconscious, really works out the reaction he gives to almost every situation. He knows little or nothing about psychology and so neither sees his mental wheels go round nor even dreams of the vast plant in which they operate. As before explained, we get the main fundamentals of our natures, the outlines, from our biological type. But the dents, fancies, faiths, and fears are impressed upon us by environment. There are three kinds of fixed feelings, fixed fears, fixed faiths, and fixed fancies. Every fixed fear comes from an experience which produced so painful an emotion that the memory sank deep into the subconscious mind. The reason we are so often unconscious of the origin of these fixed feelings is, as stated earlier, that the conscious mind deals in thoughts, but the subconscious in feelings. And because they usually arise from experiences which occurred in childhood before the conscious mind was developed. But the subconscious, being thoroughly alive even in babyhood, remembers the emotion while the conscious one forgets the cause. The more intense any feeling, emotion, the more does the conscious mind tend to forget it. This is true for two very interesting reasons. 
The first is that since we cannot think deeply and feel deeply at the same moment, any intense emotion, feeling, temporarily dethrones the conscious thinking mind and thus prevents it having a very clear conscious memory of what happens. You will note how little you can recall of the things you did or said during excitement or any intense emotion. The subconscious, which never forgets anything and especially never forgets an emotion, is deeply concerned with every emotional experience. Every intensely emotional experience makes an impression so deep that its permanent mark is left on the subconscious. Secondly, to be reminded of any deep emotion so interferes with the work of the conscious mind that it is automatically on the defensive. When an emotion is extremely painful, a scar is left, which is easily irritated ever after by anything which reminds the subconscious of the original pain. We so often have revulsions of feeling against people and things without in the least knowing why. Whenever this happens, it is because the person or thing which you automatically dislike, while doubtless innocent in itself, bears a resemblance to the symbol by which the old painful experience was recorded in the subconscious. The subconscious, as you will recall, does not deal in thoughts nor details, but reduces everything to simple symbols, which ever afterward stand for the original. When, for instance, you take an instantaneous dislike to an individual, even before you have spoken to him, it is because he brings up the symbol of some past painful emotional experience. The way he combs his hair, or the tilt of his ear, may bring up the old ugly picture subconsciously. You may never have noticed that the person you disliked combed his hair that way, and you may not be consciously aware now that the present man does, but the subconscious noted it in the first man and is reminded of it by the second. Foolish as all this seems to practical everyday souls, it is invariably the real reason. The conscious mind is not so impressionable, but remember, the conscious mind reasons, whereas the subconscious feels, and that blindly. This illustration holds good only concerning people whom you dislike instantaneously. The following little rules will clarify the reasons for your likes and dislikes of people. When you dislike a stranger instantaneously and before he has spoken, it is because something about him reminds you of the symbol of a painful experience. When you dislike a stranger after the first five minutes of conversation with him, it is because of his personality. When you dislike him after long acquaintance, it is because his type conflicts with yours. Faith is the opposite of fear. It operates in exactly the opposite manner on the mind, body, and spirit of man. Faith is a stimulant, fear a deadly narcotic. Faith is food, fear is poison. Faith develops, fear destroys. Recalling again that the subconscious does not think, but feels, and that faith is a feeling, you will see why faith has been necessary to the uplift of mankind. Thoughts are cold things compared with feelings, and the faith that moves mountains is always a matter of heart more than head. Every fixed faith comes from one or many experiences 
which produced emotions so pleasing and uplifting that the memory of them sank deep into the subconscious mind. This accounts for the fact that cold logic never swerved any man from any religious faith, which had fully satisfied him in times of need. Conversely, no man was ever completely won to any religious faith till his emotions had been appealed to, no matter how logical the evangelist. No public speaker ever became famous on his reasoning. His heart, as well as his head, had to talk. We are creatures of feeling much more than thinking, but our success in life depends upon directing our feelings by thinking. All of us are swayed in favor of certain people purely upon our feelings. We see men and women whom we instantly like or even love without being able to tell why. They may have none of the qualities we have always supposed necessary to the winning of our love, just as the other person we disliked may have had them all. But we love them, that's all. This illuminating new science of mental analysis shows us it is no accident that we instantaneously like or love another person. Whenever this happens, it is because that person reminds the subconscious of a symbol which stands for some highly pleasurable emotion or group of pleasurable emotions in our past experience. A man of our acquaintance who owned a grocery store told us that for 30 years, he had made it a point to wait on every woman who came into his store wearing a fur hat. No matter what he was doing, he let a clerk take his customer and gave his attention to the fur-hatted woman. He had just one other fixed feeling, and it was of an opposite nature. Whenever a man came in wearing an oil coat, he waited on him only if there was no one else to do it and hustled him out as quickly as possible. He had no idea of the origin of these fixed attitudes till the above explanation was made. Next day, he recalled vividly two experiences which he had not remembered for many years and which had given rise to the fixations. As a boy, he had lived in Canada, where the winters were long and severe. His mother, whom he adored and who died when he was seven, always wore a fur hat in the winter months. A fact which he did not consciously remember, but which was corroborated by her photographs and by his uncle, the mother's brother, with whom he lived. Into his childish and sensitive subconscious had gone the memory of those happy emotions which his mother had given him, and all of which were symbolized by a woman in a fur hat. The explanation of his repugnance to men in oil coats was equally easy to analyze once he was given a clue to his subconscious. His father, though a predominantly kind man, was a very austere one, and as a boy, he had been very much afraid of him. His father often threatened to punish him, but he could remember only one time when he did so, and that one time was when he did not deserve it. The father accused him of taking an axe to the woods and losing it when, as a matter of fact, he had not touched the axe and had seen his father take it away himself that morning. The father denied this and gave the boy a severe whipping. When he did so, he had just come in from looking everywhere for the axe and still wore his heavy oil coat. I never smell an oil coat without experiencing the same sufferings I had during the few moments my father was lashing me. In this case, the oil coat had become, in an emotional moment, 
the symbol of injustice, unhappiness, punishment, and disgrace. Superstition against Friday the 13th. Refusal to walk under ladders. Hatred of having one's path crossed by a black cat. Fear of raising an umbrella indoors. The superstition against going back home to get something without sitting down to count 10. And the certainty that breaking a mirror means seven years of bad luck are a few of the most widespread and popular fixed fears. Almost every man and woman has one or more of these ancient superstitions so deeply planted in his mind that he would just a little rather avoid them. The only thing that can be said about them is that they belong to the Dark Ages. But all our fixed feelings are not of an intensely happy or unhappy nature. Many of them are tinged only with sufficient pleasurable feeling to make us know we have a definite preference, not necessarily a faith. On the other hand, we may have just enough prejudice against a person or thing to experience a vague unrest or the merest opposition without its being sufficiently poignant to be called a fear. But always an instantaneous opposition, however slight, is the result of some previous painful emotion. A woman was obsessed by a fear of everything with a cutting edge. She could not work at her kitchen table so long as the butcher knife was in sight. Whenever she had to use it for cutting bread or cake, she put it away as soon as possible. If her scissors fell into her lap while sewing, she could not take another stitch until she had removed them. Whenever her husband or sons left their razors on the wash basin in the bathroom, she was ill half the morning. If she saw a penknife on the desk when writing a letter, she could not go on until she had put it in a drawer and then was usually too upset to finish. This condition had persisted since before she could remember and was getting worse. The husband, after 10 years of trying to cure her of it by telling her to forget it, had finally accepted her strange fear and was careful to put all such things out of sight. But her four sons were now grown and all living at home. They could never remember mother's freakish terror and left their razors and knives about where she was constantly coming in contact with them. She was told by the mental analyst that this obsession was nothing more nor less than a fear fixed in her subconscious by some past painful experience in which a sharp-edged instrument had figured and which had ever since been a symbol of that painful emotion. She was asked to let the matter lie fallow in her mind for a few days, to make no special effort to remember, but to leave her memory free to recall anything connected with such an experience which might account for it. We saw her every day for a week, but she could remember no incident of the kind. Her disturbance at not having been able to recall anything proved that she had been straining her conscious mind, the very opposite of the proper method. We told her to loosen her mental grip and let her mind drift for a few days or even weeks until the memory came of its own accord. In a few days, she returned. She had dug up from her subconscious the recollection which fully explained the obsession. In her childhood, her parents had been very poor. When she was three, they lived in a tumble-down house where the windows had no catches and, to be kept open, had to be held up with sticks or other things. One summer day, for lack of anything else, the mother had propped up a window in the kitchen with a long butcher knife. A few minutes later, she had seen her baby sister, 
whom she loved dearly, pushed the knife over, and in doing so permitted the window to fall upon the knife whose blade laid the baby's palm wide open. But the subconscious does not always choose such obvious elements as symbols and frequently chooses less significant ones instead of the outstanding things we might expect. This is aptly illustrated in the case of a woman who had two terrors, neither of which seemed to bear any relation to the other or to anything she could recall. She was forced to the conclusion that she needed an analysis when she discovered she could not enjoy her new home, a beautiful frame house in a Middle Western town, because of her long-standing dislike of the smell of new lumber. They had moved into the house before it was finished, and the odor of pine boards became unbearable. Her husband suggested that she take a trip, that she was nervous and overwrought, but it was impossible for her to leave just as the new furniture and hanging were to be installed. One other thing had greatly disturbed her, the fire siren. This was one of those small towns where a steam whistle is used for a fire alarm. The new home was within a block of the factory whose siren was used for this purpose. Its screech was deafening and left her nervous for hours afterward. When told that these fears were from something which had happened in her past and doubtless in her childhood, she could recall nothing at the moment. But the next day, she related this story, which was afterward corroborated by her sister. Its details came out as vividly as though it had happened the day before, which was not as surprising as it sounds. Though her subconscious had kept the memory below the threshold of her conscious mind, this secret hiding of it had caused it to be etched in with even greater vividness than it would otherwise have been. This woman had grown up in a lumber camp. When about four years of age, she had witnessed an accident at the sawmill. One of the men, in handling the logs, had slipped, lost his balance, and had his foot carried with the log into the saw. She had seen him fall and almost died of fright as the great jagged saw teeth sliced his foot from the ankle. She saw it fall off into the sawdust. Ever after, the smell of lumber and the sight of sawdust were subconscious symbols of that experience. Her aversion to sirens and other screeching noises was as obvious as the other elements when we recall that this peculiarly shrill scream of the saw accompanies every cut into a log. She was so much more taken up with the awful sight that she was not conscious of having heard the screech of the saw at the moment of the accident, but the subconscious recorded it as part of the symbol. When this memory was allowed to air itself fully, the obsession began to fade, and in a few months, had entirely disappeared. A Minneapolis man caused much comment among his friends a few years ago. He was handsome, had more than average means, was much sought after by women, equally popular among men, and a success in business. He was fastidious in his dress and person to the point of eccentricity. Any one of a dozen wealthy and beautiful society girls would gladly have accepted him in marriage. But he seemed to have no serious affair of the heart, though he paid homage to many women. At 36, he met a young professional woman, a law student, who wore her hair cropped short like a man's and who dressed in extremely mannish fashion. They were married two weeks afterward. The man was as much mystified as his friends at his strange attraction, and the only explanation he could give was this. 
I have always had a fixed fear of long human hair. Since I was a small boy, I have never seen a long, loose hair lying on anything without its disgusting me. Occasionally, when a stray one came home inside my shirt with my laundry, it made me actually ill. I have never known why I had this strange aversion, and all my friends laugh at me for it. I laugh at myself, but that doesn't help matters. In my youth, when women wore their hair fluffy and flying about the face, I was terrified whenever I was with a young woman for fear one of those long, silky hairs would attach itself to me. I liked several girls tremendously, but the fear of ever touching that long hair prevented my ever falling really in love. The young law student was a girl of brains, personality, and native good looks. We had the same taste and ideas. She was no more interesting in many ways than some of the young society girls I had met, but I loved her short hair. I have been ideally happy in my marriage. My wife, now that she has given up law, and since she knows her short hair is a handicap to me as well as herself, wants to let it grow. She has discarded the mannish clothes, and naturally the short hair is incongruous. But I cannot bear the notion, nor explain why. He was told the law of fixed fear, and in about a week recalled an incident of his childhood, which he had not consciously remembered for many years, but which fully explained the complex and in the end cleared it up to the place where he was willing for his wife to have long hair. When he was a small boy, somewhere between five and seven, he and his younger sister were playing one day in the woodshed where the laundress was doing the family washing. This was in the days of the washboard and old-fashioned tubs to which were attached the big rollers for wringing clothes. The baby sister, who had very long hair, dropped her ball into the tub, ran and leaned over to rescue it, just as the laundress was ready to put a handful of clothes through the wringer. The baby's curls were carried into it, and she was lifted off the floor by her hair and suspended there for what was a terrified moment before the boy could make the laundress thoroughly understand what was wrong. But every individual has, in addition to these painful ones, hundreds of pleasurable fixations which give him enjoyment. You have preferences of many kinds, which are as intense as they are inexplicable. One woman of our acquaintance loves a certain strain of Dvorak's humoresque so much that she is filled with ecstasy every time she hears it and keeps it on her Victrola to play whenever she is depressed or unhappy about anything. The first time she heard it was one night in the dining room of the Biltmore just after the theater. The young man, whom she loved and is now married to, had taken her there to supper. He proposed to her as the orchestra was playing this selection. A noted businessman of Kansas City who prides himself on his hard-headedness keeps 20 clean handkerchiefs in the right-hand drawer of his private desk because he finds he can talk big deals over with much more confidence if, at the moment of opening the discussion, he can also open up a crisp, creased, perfectly fresh handkerchief. But handkerchiefs are not mere handkerchiefs to him. Indeed, they are a very great deal more. He declares they have a personality all their own. The only kind he will use are those of the severest plainness, but of pure linen. Whenever he is presented with one bearing an initial, a fancy border, or a touch of color, different in any way from the kind he prefers, he not only does not use it, but is upset till he has disposed of it. 
The fact that this man cannot remember what caused all this does not alter the law. Somewhere in his past, he had a very pleasant emotional experience in which there figured a crisp, clean linen handkerchief. An interesting illustration of how something which has been a symbol of a painful emotion can later become symbolic of a pleasant one is seen in the following. In Denver in 1909 lived a splendid and sensible young woman who had one little fixation. Owing to an unpleasant experience with a cuckoo clock years before, she could not bear the ticking of watches or clocks. She held an important position in which she needed a watch, but instead of wearing it, hung it up on the wall as far away from her desk as she could see its hands. She would not own a clock and at night put the watch under her sofa pillows at the far end of her room. This condition had persisted for 15 years. Then the young man, who is now her husband and whom she was deeply in love with at the time, went to California and wanted someone to keep his valuable cuckoo clock for him while away. The young woman not only put it up in her room, but loved its ticking, cuckooing, and everything else. When teased about the sudden change, she declared its noises were entirely different from those of all other clocks and that it seemed to say, Julius, Julius, Julius the young man's name, with every swing of the pendulum. It had been so long associated with him that to her, in his absence, it became a living symbol of her lover. The memory of the old unpleasant emotion was erased and has not returned. In the lesson, Love, Courtship, and Marriage, the effective symbols on our loves will be taken up more fully. The aim here is to give a few illustrations of the power of all kinds of symbols in our lives. A Chicago banker of 50, conservative, conventional to a degree, and so austere as to be almost formidable, has one fixed preference. He loves heliotrope and, though consciously despising the use of perfume, especially by men, must have a drop or two applied to his tie every morning before he can go to the bank. If he forgets it, he makes his chauffeur turn around and take him home to get it. He has a standing order with his florist for 20 years, and every day before noon, a small sprig of heliotrope is delivered, put into an exquisite vase, and placed by his secretary at a certain spot on his desk. One day last year, this secretary met with a sudden accident and was sent home from the office before he had arranged the flowers. In the excitement, the little package containing the flowers was put into the taxi with him and carried away. The banker told us himself that though some of the biggest bank heads in Chicago were in his office at that moment for a discussion concerning a loan of $2 million and every moment important to them all, he could not begin the conference until a new bouquet had been obtained and placed in its vase at exactly the proper angle in front of him. I am fully aware and always have been of the origin of this fixation, though I have never told anyone before. As you know, I am unmarried, but as you probably do not know, shall always remain unmarried. I have loved but one woman. She loved me in return. I was not a young, impressionable boy, but a man past 30 when I met and cared for her. She always used heliotrope perfume and the first time I ever saw her, a sprig of these little flowers was pinned to her muff. She died. To me, she lives whenever I breathe this exquisite odor. I would not wish to live myself if I could not have it near me.
I have felt this way for 20 years. There are many people who have freakish fixations which they cannot explain and which, unless they cause trouble, need not be traced to their source. They should, however, be cleared up if they become obsessions. One such case is that of a man who never steps on a crack in the sidewalk. He cannot carry on a coherent conversation when walking with you down the street because he is so concentrated on avoiding the cracks in the cement or boards. A certain Boston woman cannot overcome the notion that germs are in everything and lives in terror lest she will be infected. She washes her hands 50 times a day, will not wear anything coming from a store without first having it laundered, and will eat no food save what is cooked under her own supervision in her own kitchen by a woman she has trained. She is well acquainted with the fact that only lowered bodily resistance makes us susceptible to germs, and that though they are everywhere, we are safe from them if we keep in good physical condition. But that does not eliminate the strange fixation. She is the bony type that cannot bring itself to believe in these newfangled sciences, so is spending her life in trench warfare with bacteria. A Philadelphia minister says that for 20 years he has not been able to pass a gate post, a hitching post, or a fence post without wanting to kick it. Last winter, he said, the bishop was in the city for a few days and we were entertaining him at our home. I hoped I might be able to avoid going near any posts while with him and engaged a car to take us wherever he wanted to go. But the last day of his stay was sunny. He wanted to go for a walk and insisted on its being down an avenue of fine old residences in front of many of which still stand the hitching posts of the pre-automobile era. For the first block, I managed to keep from kicking these things, but halfway down the second one, I had to step over and touch one with my foot. The impulse was overwhelming. I said something about knocking some snow off my shoe and managed, by turning into another street at the next corner, to get along without doing it again. But I had to do it that once, regardless. Many people cannot walk past a pin on the floor. Others cannot resist the temptation to look at every scrap of paper they see on the sidewalk. Others cannot walk or drive without continuously counting the change in their pockets. Others must count the steps on every staircase they climb and know the number in every stairway of every home they frequent. We know a man in Washington, D.C. who can tell you the number of steps leading into every government building in that city and also the exact number of every stairway in the U.S. Senate. A woman in Seattle said she never listened to a lecturer without counting the number of steps he took from the moment he appeared till he left the platform. A man in Indianapolis said he had counted every gesture made by a certain lecturer during a six-weeks engagement and had filled a notebook describing them. This was not due to any special interest in the lecturer. He had done the same for every speaker he had listened to for many years. Every person with a strange fixation such as these just described has acquired these strange avenues of expression because he was denied more normal outlets. For instance, the woman who is so afraid of germs is a spinster of the most straight-laced type. She has held the same position for 23 years, is faithfulness itself and conventional to excess. She has not only not married, but never had a love affair. Many of the normal instincts have had to be repressed. 
Since she is of the severe type, she had expelled them so completely from the conscious mind that the feeling which should have been given to them is broken out, as do all repressed urges, via the subconscious. Her subconscious has merely produced a substitute upon which to expend her energy. The minister who kicks posts lived for several years in China as a missionary, and as it was difficult for him to learn the language, was denied almost all companionship. He acquired this habit there. The man who counts the steps in Washington was disappointed in love years ago, and in the preoccupation which submerged him at the time, unconsciously acquired this habit. Every person who, for any reason, is driven in upon himself breaks out again through channels which are slightly or extremely abnormal, depending on the type of individual and the severity of his suffering. Every lonely person after a while takes on strange habits. All who are compelled to live much alone and most of those who are forced to repress the mating instinct ultimately become eccentric and some unbalanced. If your fixed feelings are fixed faiths, that is, if they reassure you, uplift you, sustain you, and help you to live a better, happier life, do not let anything or anybody take them away from you. If they are fixed fancies of a pleasing sort, such as the preference for heliotrope which the banker has, by all means, keep them. Life is all too drab and difficult not to brighten it by these innocent and purifying means whenever possible. A woman of our acquaintance who took her own part with great gusto in everything else permitted people to impose on her in just one way. She allowed them to push past her into streetcars, subways, and all manner of other places. She gave up her place with no resistance whatever, seeming almost pleased to do so. When asked for the cause of the strange inconsistency, she said, Four times my life has been saved because I lost a place in line. Twice it caused me to miss a train. Once because the man in front of me at the Pullman window dropped his change and tickets and kept me waiting while he gathered them up, and once because the baggage man did not get my trunk checked in time. Both these trains were wrecked. At another time, I was refused admittance to a packed elevator. I was in a hurry and insisted on getting in. The fact that a large woman who was standing behind me was permitted to enter it did not lessen my anger. The operator lost control of his car, which was overcrowded, and it dropped eight stories, killing instantly every person in it. The day of the historic Iroquois theater fire in Chicago, I was standing in line for a ticket when I discovered I had lost my purse and stepped out of line to find it. By doing so, I lost the chance to see the play. If I had not lost my place, I would doubtless have been among the hundreds burned alive in that awful disaster. Now, whenever I lose a place in line, I believe it is for some good purpose. Bonaparte's firm faith that the bullet had not been cast nor the shell tempered that could kill Napoleon not only filled the minds of his enemies with fear of even attempting it, but carried him to many victories. But if you have fixed fears of any nature, you must master them or run the risk of their mastering you. Nothing in nature remains stationary. The moment you are not getting stronger, you are getting weaker. The man who stops climbing has begun to slide back. To live a healthful, happy, honorable life, you must be a master of your moods. To be the master of your moods, the first thing to do is 
face the fact and begin to be honest and sensible. Mental analysis, this most searching and profound of all human sciences, has proved that most of our worst mental and physical ailments, disappointments, and failures come from our refusal to be frank and straightforward with ourselves. Whether the thing you are afraid of is big or little, real or imaginary, you can be free from it if you try. You are one of God's creatures, and God never meant any creature to be sad, dejected, or frightened. We make ourselves so by violating His divine laws. If your obsessions are those of regret for past sins of commission or omission, try to think of this subconscious of yours as a pool that you are going to drain by being perfectly honest with yourself. And you can be, because nothing you have ever done, thought, said, or been guilty of was so very bad. The force that rules the universe is big, beautiful, and above all, benign. A benign force, whether personal or impersonal, forgives or ignores our faults. Put yourself in harmony with the divine by forgiving yourself right now for anything that has been causing you regret or remorse. No matter what you have done or failed to do, just remember this. You did the best your nature was capable of at that time, under those conditions, and with those particular temptations. The worse it was, the more it is necessary that you do that much better in the future. You cannot do anything big or fine with fear gripping and crippling you. Whatever negative thing is in your mind, and however long it may have been there, it can be eliminated by doing two things. First, be honest with yourself. Admit to yourself that you have been a weak, silly fool, or anything else that you have been. But don't let it discourage you. Confession is good for the soul. It clears the air. It blows the cobwebs out of your mind. It is a mental vacuum cleaner. Second, realize that whatever you desire to come true in your life can be brought to pass if you really want it. It can be brought to pass by the same power that has brought most of the things you have in your life, your own subconscious mind. It will not do so in a day. The subconscious does not respond to a thought until many times repeated. The only thing it reacts to instantly is feeling. But through a law which is fully explained in the last lesson of this course, any desired impulse can be planted in the subconscious. Once there, it will operate with the same unresting force as these other urges of ours which have been shot into it by emotion. You can plant in your subconscious soil the seeds of anything you truly desire. It will bring forth its harvest according to its nature. You must stop filling this great battery with negative energy. By right thinking, you can make all its energy positive, and that positive force will bring to pass whatever you deeply desire. Man is a unit. Each human being is an organized community of living cells, of which there are over 26 trillions in the commonwealth of the brain and body. This intricate and intimate relationship between all the cells of the human organism is affected through two channels, the nervous system and the circulatory system. The living cables of the nervous system run from the brain through the spinal cord and solar plexus and branch and rebranch until practically every cell in the body has its own tiny nerve. 
By means of this sensitive system, any part of the brain or body instantly influences, for health or disease, happiness or distress, every other part of the organism. To illustrate to yourself how quickly and keenly the outside world, without tangible contact, affects the body through this delicate nervous system, recall what happened to you when you smelled something extremely disagreeable. The impression was carried to the brain, which instantly sent over its nerve wires a mental telegram to your stomach. If it was very unpleasant, you became nauseated. If the revulsion was severe, there resulted those violent convulsions of the stomach which cause vomiting. Yet, you had neither touched nor tasted the unpleasant thing, merely heard of it through your nerves. The next day, you are passing a bakery. You smell the delicious odor of bread. The brain dispatches a pleasing telegram to your stomach, telling it to secrete the gastric juices preparatory to digesting some of that bread. You instantly become hungry. If you cannot stop and get a loaf to take home or eat it then and there, if you keep on going and ignore it, an interesting thing happens. The juices which ran into your stomach on that hurry call have no food to work on. Since their energy, like that of everything else, must expend itself, they agitate your empty stomach, an abnormal process, which in turn makes you slightly physical and then mentally upset. When that point is reached, the circle is completed. You are back to the mind from whence the message first came. Your mind and body always operate in this circle. Whatever affects one affects the other. A mental disturbance not only harms the body, but because the body also affects the mind, comes back like a boomerang when it completes the circle. A physical disturbance not only upsets the mental process, but returns, via their influence, back to the body in that same vicious circle. This little hunger for the bread is only the most elemental illustration. Every normal human being has hundreds and thousands of hungers. The particular kind most frequent and intense with each individual comes as a bread hunger would ultimately have come, from your own inner nature. This inner nature will show in his externals and determine his type. But life is forever tempting, reminding, awakening these sleeping tendencies, just as the accidental passing of the bakery awakened your hunger for bread. Now, if you had been excessively hungry, that is, had a deep inner urge for food, before you came to the bakery, it would have been much more difficult for you to keep going. And so it is with our type hungers. They come from our inner biological systems and are quick to flare up when anything occurs in our environment which appeals to them. But whether the hunger comes from the overdevelopment of an inner system or is aroused by outer stimuli, any hunger which is repressed and ignored expends its pent-up energy, as did the gastric juices, on something else. Thus, we have discovered the law of repression. Every intense impulse or ambition which is refused expression through normal, natural outlets finds less normal and sometimes abnormal outlets for itself. Today's science shows that most of our unhappiness and failure and practically all our ill health, half-health, and disease are but the distorted expressions of deep desires long repressed. Your mental and physical energy is like a river. It must flow onward and outward to stay pure 
and natural. A pool becomes stagnant only when denied an outlet. The most foul water purifies itself in a few miles of rapid flowing. Society in general and conditions or relations in which we place ourselves restrain us and choke back this natural expression as a dam holds back a river. Such a dam holds the water back temporarily and nothing happens. But if the pressure becomes greater and greater, after a while, one of two things will happen. The dam will break or the steam will burst over in another direction. Disease and wrongdoings are often the breaking out of the subconscious stream. Reversions are the result of the breaking of the dam itself. Criminologists declare that crime is the result of the repression of the true personality and that criminals differ from the average man and woman chiefly in that a much larger proportion of the personality is thwarted. These and hundreds of corroborative facts prove how closely the body, mind, and spirit of man are intertwined and how everything which affects one affects the other. It is not necessary to dwell on these impulses in our minds nor to act them out in our lives. Civilization has cost too much on the part of brave souls and is too great a boon to mankind for any individual to revert to the primitive where all this is lost on him. He owes it to himself, first of all, and second to the world, to straighten his spine and live the life of a man. We have been told this before, but we have not been told how to make a working compromise between these inner impulses, which, for any reason, could not be expressed naturally, and the ideals we so much desired to live up to. No one was to blame for this state of affairs. No one knew, until very recently, that choking an intense impulse did not kill it. No one suspected, for instance, the real reason for the chronic ailments, sour dispositions, and eccentric streaks of old maids of both sexes, nor why people who live alone, people who are unloved or unsuccessful, develop certain kinds of maladies, mental and physical. Today, we know that the admonition to forget it merely crowds the unspent energy down into the lower reaches of the organism from whence it emerges sooner or later in some less natural form. The big lesson taught by mental analysis is that whenever you have any intense impulse which cannot or should not be expressed, you are to look at it straight in the face. Realize that it is no different from the impulse of millions who have gone before you, that it is not perverted, disgraceful, nor anything to be ashamed of as an impulse. The thing to be ashamed of would be the secret loathing of yourself for having it or permitting it to act itself out in harmful, dishonorable, or destructive deeds. After you have looked at it, after you have recognized it for the out-of-date or out-of-place impulse it is, say to this thing, yes, you were all right in your day a million years ago before we learned that human progress depended on the development of the higher instincts. You are the natural descendant of the primitive in me, and as such are not to blame for being here. But if you think I am going to live down to your level just because you are here, you are very much mistaken. Now, you have a lot of energy. Stop whining in the dark there. Come out into the light, and I'll put that energy to work. I am a 20th century human being with a brain, 
and I am going to live the life of one, not that of a man of dead ages. I have nothing against you. All you need is to expend that energy of yours. I'll find something right out here in the daylight for you to do. Get at it. As a result of our wrong systems of training, the most sensitive and high-minded are often obsessed with a sense of shame and disgrace, which cripples all their efforts, while the tough-minded, as James called them, express more of their inner urges, accomplish more, keep their health, and get the good things out of life. They do not do this necessarily by expressing destructive urges in the original form, but often by an automatic sublimation natural to the biological type. Other and finer types, taught by parents, teachers, preachers, and society that certain things are vile, believe it and grow to despise themselves. No human being can stay well or do good work who secretly loathes himself. It is small wonder that some of our Orthodox churches are empty. Renunciation and repression are stunting, saddening, sickening doctrines. They weaken, disintegrate, and destroy. The sense of original sin, of an inner filth that can never be quite eliminated, is fatal to health and happiness. Of its own force, it is ultimately fatal to any sect that teaches it. God never intended any living things to be cowed or shamed. Everything in nature grows up, not down. It grows with its head toward the heavens. When human beings listen less to men and more to the sermons and every sun-seeking flower, they will begin to be good, happy, healthy, and successful. The average individual tries not to think or feel certain things. He crowds them out of his mind and thinks they are gone. Today we know that whatever is pushed out of the consciousness recedes into subconsciousness. If these throttled thoughts concern deep desires, they come back again and again. If rejected over and over, they finally return behind the false face of some unaccountable attitude which we do not recognize as connected with anything we have previously felt. We now know these are merely old urges in disguise. Most of our physical ills, emotional explosions, outbursts of temper, and faults are these repressed impulses on masquerade. As children, we were taught that the way to dispose of Satan was to say, get thee behind me. We were told that when we did this, Satan vanished. Today, the science of mental analysis shows what we have always suspected, that Satan stayed right there and has been talking over our shoulders ever since. It shows us that we have got to do something besides put Satan behind our backs unless we wish to be pushed into the very things we fear. Fortunately, it shows us that the things we must do to turn his power into constructive channels is much easier than the things we have been doing in our blind and ignorant efforts to get rid of him. Every human fault, like every disease, is the result of damned-up energy. Everything in the world moves, and does so because it is full of energy. Nothing is ever still, even for an instant, no matter how much it may appear so. Everything, from the particles in the wooden chair on which you sit, to the constellations in the sky, are moving, moving, moving. Motion is the law of the universe. Motion creates energy, and energy must expend itself. 
If you do not permit it to expend itself in natural, normal ways, it expends itself in abnormal, unnatural ways. Depending always on the type of individual and the weakest point in his physical or mental makeup. When you see no evil effects for a time, you imagine you have obliterated this impulse. But you have only bottled it, and the longer you keep the cork in, the more it ferments. Someday, it will explode. Any work, situation, or condition which compels you to keep on doing a thing you do not like to do causes the gradual building up within you of a mass of aversions and repulsions which eventually break forth. They may not break out in open rebellion against the thing itself. In fact, we have discovered that the greater the dislike of a thing on the part of certain types of people, the less likely are they to voice their resentment or to show open resistance to that specific thing. These are the people to whom comes the greatest harm. Whenever you express open opposition to a thing, you let off steam and relieve the pressure just that much. The types that speak out have far fewer subconscious complexes than the silent, timid ones, though they often have the very ones they and their friends would least expect to find in them. A young boy was left alone while his mother went to the corner grocery. A box of papers he was playing with caught fire from the open grate. He was too young to know how to put out the fire and afraid to run away from it. So he ran to the back stairs, threw the blazing box into the basement, and slammed the door. He had a few moments of apparent safety, but the house burned down. It used to be supposed that some men had an aim and others had not, that some knew what they wanted and others had no preferences, that some men were blessed with ambitions and others didn't care. Today, we know that every individual has many subconscious wishes and one overwhelming subconscious longing toward whose attainment every act of his life is consciously or unconsciously directed. Everything which tends toward the fulfillment of this subconscious wish reacts constructively, happily, healthily back upon his body, mind, work, and life in its entirety. Everything which hinders it reacts destructively upon every element of his personality, physical, mental, moral, and spiritual, and takes its toll in some form of depression, disintegration, or disease. An interesting illustration of how the thwarting of a subconscious wish can cause physical troubles and how quickly the removal of the barrier can cure came to my notice in 1910, said a physician recently. It also shows the lesser power of conscious wishes as compared to the great force of subconscious ones. I was sent for at 4.30 one afternoon to come to an office in the state capitol in Denver where a young woman was ill. She was suffering with intense pain and had a temperature of 103. It developed at 5 o'clock when the rest of the office force left that she had been very anxious to see the Merry Widow, which was playing at the Broadway Theater that week and was to have gone with the rest of the girls that evening to see it. She was much disappointed that her illness necessitated their giving the ticket to someone else. While we waited for the taxi, which was to take her home, she told me how sorry she was not to see the Merry Widow, but glad she didn't have to see the minstrels, which were also in town. She very much disliked minstrels, she said.
A moment later, the telephone rang, and she was asked for. I told the young man at the other end of the wire that she was too ill to answer. But before I could prevent it, she took up the receiver. Two minutes later, she walked out of that room free of her headache and fever, perfectly well. The illness, she told me as we walked down the hall, had come from a week's worry over not having heard from the young man, whom she loved devotedly. She feared she had lost him. When he phoned and asked her to go that evening to the minstrel show, having already seen the Merry Widow himself, she found she would love the minstrels after all, that she didn't mind missing the Merry Widow and was well enough to go. The illness in this case was real. The desire to see the Merry Widow and not to see the minstrels was genuine, but existed only in her conscious mind, whereas the desire to be with the young man was part of a deep subconscious wish and, as such, able to make her not only glad to see the minstrels, but to become well instantly. Fear causes more maladies, physicians say, than all other things combined. The man who is afraid is never a well man. Strange as it may seem, it is the fears we repress more than the fears we express, which do us severe harm. Another illustration of how things shoved back into subconsciousness wreak their force upon us under assumed appearances. It is a historical and well-known fact that every war is followed by epidemics. We have assumed that congestion of masses of men, poor sanitation, and exposure were the inevitable causes, and certain it is that these have had much to do with it. But hundreds of the leading physicians of the world have declared that the Spanish influenza epidemic of 1918 was caused largely by fear in many cases, and that at its height, many people had every outward symptom of this disease without the slightest fever or any actually diseased condition. They have gone a step farther and declared that patients died under the impression that they were afflicted with this malady when, as a matter of fact, they were killed by fear. It was shown in a previous lesson that fixed fears always come from a very painful emotional experiences of one's past. The insidious and far-reaching effect of a single fixed fear was explained. Imagine then the effect upon the individual of an integrated, organized group of fixed fears, a set of them, surrounding some long, drawn-out, or vital experience in his life. Mental science distinguishes these groups of fixed fears by the name of complexes. They differ from others chiefly in the fact that instead of one element, they have many. Single fixed fears arise from momentary or even instantaneous experiences, such as the little girl suffered in the fraction of a second when she witnessed the saw cutting off the man's foot. Her fixed fear of screeching noises and the smell of lumber were born in that instant of intense emotion. What can rightly be called a complex is the result of an experience of much longer duration, sometimes of years, which contained many characteristics. Several of these are symbolized in the subconscious mind with such vividness that being reminded of one brings the total experience forth from memory's vault. A Cleveland broker who had a reputation for cool-headedness and self-control developed a violent complex against women's white kid gloves, plumes, French-heeled shoes, and baby Irish lace. Whether displayed in shops or being worn by their fair owners, 
Whenever and wherever he saw any of these things, his composure instantly left him and he grew angry, disgusted, and resentful. Though he succeeded in concealing his agitation from his friends and employees, he declared it was hours, sometimes days, before he fully recovered. These things upset him, he said, because they brought back to him with terrific force memories of a bitter period in his life. Many years before, he had been married to a charming and unusually beautiful woman whom he idolized, the only woman, moreover, that ever interested him. She flirted with other men, gave him 10 years of heartbreaking disillusionment, and finally eloped with a clerk of his office. She was a woman of extreme fashionable and fastidious tastes. She specialized in French-heeled shoes, white kid gloves, and the willow plumes and baby Irish lace, which were the mode at that time. Whenever he saw any of these things, the tragedy of the whole 10 years engulfed him. The total experience lived itself over in his feelings, condensed and intensified. <laughs> 